0: Uh, One of the things at Crossroads here that we are just um, really grateful for is the way that God uh, works through us in missions. We love to see what God is doing around the world, and we love to be a part of that. And so I'm really excited for this team, not just because they're the first uh, missions trip that we're sending out since all of the COVID stuff began, but also because of the missionary that they're working with. Barb Bullock is one of our longtime missionaries, and she works largely in Latin America. She's developed this Virtues curriculum that is super cool that's being taken Um, all throughout different countries, really developed for young ladies 11 to 13 years old because in Latin uh, American countries, that is the prime age where if girls do not understand virtue, do not have hope in this life, they turn towards sex trafficking to make it out of whatever they're living in. And so, Barb has developed this curriculum. It was picked up by Texas A&M, and now it's being spread out through all of Latin America. And these ladies that we're sending on this trip get to be a part of the first ever graduating class uh, for that program. And so, it is super... Super cool, yeah, super cool of what God is doing. Um, in light of that, also uh, next week, we're going to have really just kind of celebration of missions. Uh, over the course of December, we were raising money as a church to launch a church and a center for compassion in Guatemala. And next week, we're going to have a special service celebrating that together, what God is doing. We're going to hear uh, from some people from compassion, and we'll have the opportunity uh, in the lobby after services to sponsor those kids that are a part of that center that we just launched together. And so next week, I'm going encourage you to be here and uh, be a part of that as we celebrate what God is doing. So uh, with that all said, uh, I want to welcome those of you here who are brand new to Crossroads. If uh, you don't know me and I don't know you, my name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads. And today we are wrapping up a short three-week series where we've been pondering this question together. This is the question, why do we sometimes do, uh, why do we sometimes know the right thing to do the good thing to do, the most loving thing to do, and then just not do it? That's a question that we don't ponder often in our culture or in our society, but it is a question that makes a big difference in our lives. In fact, just this week, three different people in different kind of circumstances came up to me and repeated this question to me as they dealt with issues that they were facing in their lives. I mean, when it comes to everything that we have, the vast religious writings and ethical writings that we have access to, people who yearn to be people of love, for all the efforts that we put in into getting ourselves help, for all the evidence of how futile violence and hatred is in our world, the problem for most of us is not that we don't know what we ought to do. We do. The problem for most of us is we know what we ought to do, and then we just can't do it. And the reality is is that this is the problem for all of humanity. That when it comes to all of humanity, the question really is, is why can't we be good all the time? Why can't we be good all the time? And so in order to answer that question over the last couple of weeks, we've been in this series called Fallen Kings, where we're looking at the first three kings of Israel, their hearts, their passions, their desires, and really in hopes of learning a little bit about ourselves and what drives us and really largely looking at humanity in order that we might answer this question together. And so week one, if you missed, week one we looked at the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. And what we see in Saul is that in his early days, as he's anointed king, his reign really gets off to a great start in Israel. Like he's obeying God, he's a good leader, the people are following him, he has some early victories in battles. But those early days, as they turn into years, And even decades, we see that Saul eventually gives himself over to a heart of fear. That a heart of fear begins to consume him, that as he looks out at the other kingdoms and the other kings, he is so afraid that he's not going to become like them that it drives him to the point in his fear of beginning to deceive himself and disobeying God. And what we see in Saul, particularly when it comes to fear, is this: is that fear isn't the worst thing about us, but it is one of the reasons why we do. The worst things. Then last week, we looked at the second king of Israel, a guy by the name of David. And David's story is a fascinating story of this rise of this really unknown teenager to becoming the greatest king in the history of Israel and one of the most powerful leaders in the world during this time. And we watch David for all the success that he has, including being named and described as a man after God's own heart. That there's these moments in his life where he knows the right, the good, the most loving thing to do, and then he just chooses not to do them. And as we watch his life uh, play out, we see this moment in David's life where because of his pride he begins to take the census of the nation of Israel to count how many men he has in order to fight, as if the size of his army says more about his skill than it does God's grace in his life. And what we see in King David is that when it comes to pride, that pride is one of the reasons why we do the worst things. Today, we're going to turn our attention to the third king of Israel, a guy by the name of Absalom. And so if you have a Bible... I would love for you, or invite you, to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 14, all right? That's where we're going to be. Now, when it comes to the story of Absalom, this stuff, for those of us who grew up in church, is not the stuff that we are taught in Sunday school, all right? No, no, No kids are coloring pictures about this story. There's no tomatoes and cucumbers singing the song about this story, all right? Like, this story of Absalom really does begin with his father, King David. Now, King David, of all the things that we're told, one of the things that he kind of had a history in his life is his love for women. And he took on a lot of wives. He married a lot of women. And when I say a lot of women, eight, at least that we know of. And then he had a whole hotel of concubines. And, you know, as David being king, right, particularly as a successful king, you probably get to a place where you come to believe that you deserve a little bit of excess in this world. And from all of those women come children, 18 of which are named in the scriptures, many of them taking on the worst traits of dad, not the best of traits. And so David's first child is a son. His name's Amnon. And Amnon is the prince of Israel. He is the, you know, the heir to the throne of the kingdom. And at some point in Amnon's life, he rapes one of the most beautiful women in all of Israel, his half-sister Tamar. And when King David hears about what had happened, his heart is broken. He is moved to anger, but he does not do anything about it. There is no justice. There is no discipline when it comes to Amnon, the prince of Israel. The third son that David has is a handsome young man named Absalom. And Absalom, we're told, or is described this way in 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. That just means it was really heavy, all right? So when you think of Absalom, I just want you to think of like, like he was the first century Jason Momoa, all right? Like he had long flowing hair. He was ripped. He was out without, without blemish. And he just so happened to be the full brother of Tamar, the young woman who was raped. Now, for two years, two whole years, Absalom waits for his dad, King David, to do something, to do anything about what happened to his sister. For two whole years, Absalom waits for dad to show that he cares about his baby girl. And David, well, well, David does nothing. And every day that passes... Absalom grows in his frustration. Every day that passes, Absalom grows in his anger until he's finally moved to take justice into his own hands. And he plans this party out in this field, and he invites all of his brothers and his half-brothers to come with him. And the PBR's flowing, and the boys are having a good time with cornhole until Amnon begins to stumble around drunk. And at that moment, Absalom takes a shot and runs him through with a sword. Absalom, having killed his brother, the heir of the kingdom, the prince of Israel, angered, dealing with his own anger that it should have been dad who was fighting for his daughter, not him, gets scared, and he flees the country to a place called Gesher. Now, for the next couple of years, three years actually, Absalom lives in Gesher with his relatives, his, his mom's family. And the entire time that he's in Gesher, he, he yearns to come home. He yearns to come back to Israel. He yearns to come back to Jerusalem. And for David, his part in this story, David yearns also for Absalom to come back. He yearns for his son to come home. But David, as the king, he can't just pardon this son. He he can't just forgive his son for killing the prince of, of Israel. He can't just forgive his son for killing the heir of the kingdom. And so Joab enters into the story. Joab, as we were introduced to him last week, is the commander of Israel's army. And he's an advisor to David. And as we saw last week, that when it comes to Joab, Joab's not like the picture of spiritual discernment in the Bible. In fact, when you think of advisors, Joab is more like Papalteen than he is Obi-Wan. That's just how it is. And Joab puts together this whole ruse where he's leaning on the consciousness of David day after day after day until David eventually gets to the point where he goes, enough's enough. Let's bring Absalom home. And so Absalom comes back to town looking all Jason Momoa. Everybody's taking notice that he's back in town. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, here's what we're told in verse 27, that there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So after Absalom's sister Tamar is raped, despite having done nothing wrong, despite her incredible beauty, from that moment forward, she is nothing more in culture's eyes than a broken, defiled woman who is sentenced to a lifetime of carrying the scarlet letter. That in that culture, in that time, there would not be a man who would come around who would even dare to touch her because of, because of that she had been defiled. And so here's Absalom, her brother who who cares deeply for her, and after this incident, realizing what the rest of Tamar's life is going to look like, he takes his sister in to care for her. And from that moment on, Aunt Tamar lives with the family, and when Absalom gets back to Jerusalem, we're told that he has four kids, he has one baby girl, and he named that baby girl Tamar. You gotta understand that this is personal for David. That even though he had killed his brother Amnon in, in vengeance, there is this growing animosity towards dad, towards King David. That Absalom's back in Jerusalem, and for the last two years, his dad hasn't even come around to visit the grandkids. I mean, this is the height of toxic family, you know, toxic, toxic family dysfunction. What does it do to a guy's heart to live in that? Well, in chapter 15, this twisted tale begins to unfold for us. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gates. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and writes, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in this land! Then every man with a dispute or a cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgments. So Absalom stole the hearts of men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. So just to put into context the story, so now we know where we're at. For two years, for two years, Absalom waits for the king to do something, to do anything to his half-brother for raping his sister. Then he spends the next three years on the run fleeing for his life, scared that, you know, someone's going to come from the king to end his life. He's finally imba- invited back to the kingdom. And for the first two years, the king has nothing to do with him. And now we're two years later than that. So get this, we're now at nine years of this guy living with dad, not doing anything. Dad, not stepping up. Dad, not loving. Dad, not caring. And it does not number on Absalom's hearts. So Absalom's in the city, and every morning he rides his chariots around town, a not so subtle reminder of who the prince is. And every day he takes his chariots to the city gates. The gates were an important part of ancient life. The city gates are where people brought their concerns to be adjudicated. The city city gates is where they went for justice. And during this period of David's reign, no one's there to represent the king. That no one's there at the city gates representing the king. No one's there to hear from the people. No one's there to care. No one's there to make sure that justice is happening in the kingdom. And throughout the entire story, you have these little hints from time to time where we see King David has, has become really a, a king that is disconnected and indecisive. He's become passive and, and inattentive to the needs of the people. All the while, day after day, the people are still coming to the city gates, still looking for true justice. And David is nowhere to be found, but Absalom's there. Absalom's there every day, filling the vacuum of leadership, meeting with the people, listening to their concerns, saying, you, your concerns, it's legit, you got beef. And every day, there he is, encouraging them. And before they leave, he adds that there's no one among the king's courts who's here to listen to you. There's no one among the king's people who's here to give you justice. If I was judge, <laughs> in other words, if I was king, I would make sure that your concerns were heard for. I would make sure that your needs were met. I would, I would give you justice. And upon hearing this, the, the people would bow before him and he'd pick them up, he would embrace them, he'd kiss them before sending them on, his, on their way. And at this point in the story, there's a little bit of tension for us, isn't there? I mean, we read the story and we go, is Absalom, is he a bad dude or is he good? And the Bible doesn't really tell us one way or another. The Bible just gives us a picture of, of who he is. A man who is deeply concerned for his sister, who apparently has concern for the people of Israel, who has a strong bent towards justice. And the problem is that he begins to take things into his own hands. And he sets forth this plan to become king. And the only problem is, is that there's no mention of God anywhere. There's there's no picture of God anywhere, anywhere to be found. It's just his calling, his right, his throne. I'm going to gather the people around me who see me as the leader. I'm going to take this thing. And he does. He does. In his ambition, he hatches this plan to go to Hebron. Hebron was the place where his dad, David, was anointed king. In the eyes of the people, Hebron is significant in naming the next king of Israel. And Absalom takes 200 of his faithful followers to Hebron. There they stage a fake coronation, and they trick the people into naming and proclaiming him as the king of Israel. And the plan to steal the throne works, verse 13 and a messenger comes running to King David saying, King, the heart of men, the heart of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. We skip forward to chapter 16. Now Absalom and all of the people, the men of Israel, they come marching into Jerusalem. And Ahithophel, that's a mouthful, uh, came with him. That's an important dude. And when Hushai, the archaic, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king. Long live the king. Unfortunately for Absalom, this will kind of be the height of his reign over Israel. In little less than a month, Absalom will die in a freak accident involving his beautiful hair, However, during this one month, we watch him deceive people, shortcut his way by stealing the throne, wage war on his own family, and desecrate his dad's house. Basically, he becomes Darth Vader. And we get to this point in the story, and we go, how in the world? How in the world does Absalom, a guy whose heart was broken for all the right reasons, A guy who had deep concern for his sister, concern for the people of Israel, who sought real and true justice. How does he get to this point? How does he end up here? The answer is that in the end, Absalom's heart was driven by selfish ambition. See, the lure of selfish ambition is that success promises to fill the holes in our hearts. That if you can just ascend this high or accumulate this much, then all of your fears and insecurities, they'll be resolved. Success promises the love of those around us. That once we achieve a certain amount of success and they finally give you the respect, the honor, the affection that you crave, success says that it can cover all of the wrongs in your life. It, it offers you power and control and security. It wears the Savior's costume and presents itself as a trustworthy hero. But with selfish ambition oftentimes costs us, it oftentimes costs us our integrity, it oftentimes costs us our relationships, that we compromise on what we know is right, good, and loving, for decisions that are what's best for me, It can even show up in our best of intentions, and this is exactly where we find our fallen king, Absalom. That for all of his well intentions, all of his good intentions, all his well-meaning intentions, here's a man who we're told not only steals the throne but desecrates his father's house in a sexual way that undoubtedly when he wakes up and looks in the mirror He sees the man that he despised, namely his brother Amnon. See, selfish ambition is one of the greatest reasons why we choose to do the wrong thing. It is one of the greatest reasons that we choose to do the wrong thing. And when it becomes the driver of our hearts, it hides in the shadows lurking in our desires, our passions, our decisions, even the ones that are well-intended, even the good ones. It's what makes the temptation of Jesus, the third temptation of Jesus, so powerful. If you remember from the previous weeks that Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, he's there fasting, he's all alone, that he's out in the wilderness to be tried and tempted the same ways in which we are tried and tempted. And we're told during the temptation account of Jesus' life that Satan shows up the first time. And the first time that Satan shows up, he he comes tempting Jesus with his insecurities and fears. The second time Satan, the great tempter, shows up, he, he comes tempting Jesus in his pride. Both times, Jesus just swats him away. Eventually, Satan comes at Jesus a third time. Baiting the hook with temptation, the great tempter says to him in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. This temptation had to feel so heavy for Jesus. And I wonder if this moment that both Satan and Jesus, if they didn't have Psalm chapter 2 at the forefront of their minds. See, Psalm chapter 2 is all about the Messiah, the Savior being king, ruling the kingdoms where God says that I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession, that you will rule all the kingdoms of the world with an iron scepter. And I have to imagine, like, in this moment, how kingly did Jesus look and feel? After 40 days and 40 nights of of fasting in the wilderness, he's alone, tired, dirty, hungry, thirsty. Being king of God's kingdom must have literally felt like an eternity away. And the devil seizes the opportunity, saying, Come on, Jesus, I can show you a way to fulfill the desires of your hearts, that I can offer you glory without the suffering. How enticing it must have been in that moment. I mean, it wasn't like Jesus was in the dark about God's plan of ascension for him. That Jesus knew that the cross was before him and that through the agonizing suffering of the cross that justice would be satisfied, the salvation of people would be secure and at the end of all of it, that glory would be bestowed upon him. And Satan comes in this moment, he's he's baiting the hook saying that you can have all of the glory and none of the suffering, just bow down. I mean, come on, Jesus. It's already been declared that you'll be king. You can just short wait, shortcut your way to the throne. The echoes of Absalom's temptation ringing in his ears. Now just think with me for a moment. If Jesus had taken this temptation, what that would look like for the history of the world, what that would look like for you and me, if, if just for a moment he had acted out of selfish ambition, I mean, at the very least, Jesus would have had some form of glory, but we would have no hope. That without the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, God's justice would not be satisfied, and evil would ultimately win. Death would swallow us whole. What had to feel like the weight of all of humanity on Jesus' shoulders he looks at Satan and he replies like this, verse 10. Jesus said to him, Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That Jesus' response comes out of the book of Deuteronomy, just like the other two before it. In this particular passage, Moses is reminding the people of Israel that it was God who delivered them, it was God who freed them, it was God who brought them good. Now, if you remember the Exodus story, after God delivers the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, after he delivers them from Pharaoh in the most miraculous ways, they make this march across the desert for three months. They end up in this mountain called Sinai. Moses goes to the top to get the Ten Commandments from God. And as Moses is communing with God, his brother Aaron is at the bottom having fashioned a golden calf, holding it up, and all the people of Israel are bowing down in worship to it. It's this heartbreaking moment in the history of Israel, where they give the worship that God deserved to an idol. And as Jesus looks at Satan, with Absalom's temptation ringing in his ears, he looks at Satan and says, my father has has given it the commandment, but my father has made clear that he alone is to be worshipped. That worship is the bowing down before a king, and Satan, you are no king. It's a powerful response where Jesus teaches us a bit about worship. And in worship, the secret to finding freedom from our selfish ambition that so oftentimes destroys and lays destruction to our lives. See, the secret that Jesus reveals in order to overcome our selfish ambition is that we need to keep looking towards God. We need to keep looking to God. That so oftentimes, when our focus becomes ourselves, we are consumed with what is ours, and we walk down the deep, dark hole of selfish ambition. But when we fix our eyes upon God, it reminds us that our ambition doesn't have to be selfish, that our ambition can be holy, and that holy ambition is focused on God and fulfilling his will, and ultimately there finding the satisfaction and meaning and purpose of our lives. It's about positioning our our hearts and minds on him, ready to move forward as he asks and leads. It's about redefining success, not based on how much we have or what it is that we do or how far that we can get, but rather on the opportunities to love and serve others and in the entirety of all of it bring glory to God. See, where we see Absalom make a play to selfishly take the glory, we see Jesus, who deserved glory and honor, take on condemnation, the condemnation that we deserved, so that in the end that we could have glory and honor. Jesus fulfilled the justice that we deserved, and in its place we receive mercy. This is the gospel. This is beautiful. This is remarkable. See, where Absalom got all mixed up, and oftentimes where we get confused, is that there's only one way to deal with sin. There's only one way to true justice. And it isn't found at the top of the corporate ladder. It's not found in in becoming king or the size of of your 401k or the number of people who follow you as a leader, even how happy you are in your job, that only God can address the needs that are found deep within our souls. That selfish ambition wears the Savior's costume, but it can never address the need. It can never address the need that we have most. Because what we need most is a savior who transforms our hearts, who gives us life, who frees us from having to prove ourselves to other, who frees us from having to prove ourselves to ourselves, who frees us from serving ourselves. See, it's only in Jesus that we are are saved. And it's only in Jesus that we are saved so deeply and satisfied so fully that we can let ourselves, our gifts, our talents, our treasures, our money, our career, whatever it might be, even our lives, to be poured out for the sake of others. That he is the freeing, satisfying, controlling purpose of everything that we do. And it is that that we are to allow, to drive, to be the driver of our lives. See, the truth of the matter is is that there's a little bit of Absalom in every single one of us. In fact, as we walk through the story, maybe there's more Absalom in your life and in your heart than you even would like to admit, more than you're comfortable with. And the good news is that Jesus is right there. And he says, come to me. Let me show you what it looks like to walk in love. Let me, let, me, let me show you what it looks like to walk in truth. Keep your eyes on me. Come on, come on. Keep your eyes on me and experience life. See, the solution to our selfish ambition is not to look more deeply at ourselves, but rather to turn our attention to God and allow those ambitions that so quickly, even the good intentions, so quickly turns evil that when we look at God and keep our eyes focused there, those selfish ambitions, they're turned to holiness as we begin to walk with him, that as we live our lives for him, as we build on the foundation of the life that he's set before us. And if you're here today and you feel a tug on your soul, I want you to know that that we believe that that's God whispering to you saying, come on, Let me show you a deeply satisfying way of living that maybe you didn't even know existed. If that's you, I want to invite you. You've already seen the text number. You can take out your phone. You're not going to offend me or anybody else around. But you can send a text to our number, 720-513-1933. You can send the name of Jesus, and we'll meet you there. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we... We read through this story, and the uncomfortable reality is that um, as well as Absalom's heart is is probably a little bit more like us than we would like to admit. That for many of us, Lord, we're probably way closer to Absalom's heart than we are yours. And Jesus, I pray, I pray, Lord that we would be able to take our eyes off ourselves and that we would be able to focus on you and as we walk where you walk, as we walk where you lead, as we give our lives to you, as we experience love, that the ambitions of our soul would become holy, that we wouldn't be consumed with ourselves but we would that we'd begin to, to look outside ourselves to others. And in doing so, that we would experience a life that you have for us. A life of of satisfaction. A life of purpose, a life of meaning. A life in which we can just dwell in the presence of our Savior and know that it's good. Father, I pray today that our heart would follow the heart of King Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. The powerful name of Jesus. Amen. As we come together as a family, celebrating in this this sacred moment of communion, Reminded that, that Jesus demonstrated the life that we're to aspire to at the cross. That is, at the cross where his body was broken. The Apostle Paul, one of the writers of the Bible years later, would comment on the cross in this way that what Jesus demonstrated for us was what it looks like to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceits, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And at the cross we see Jesus, who in every way deserved honor and glory as the Son of God, who stepped out of his throne in order that he might face condemnation, the condemnation that is ours, satisfying the justice of God so that we might receive honor and glory being called his sons and daughters. It's the significance of Jesus's body being broken on the cross. And today we remember that significance. We celebrate it in our lives by eating together. we're told on that day that Jesus took the cup and he said this is my blood this is my blood as Paul would write years later he says I want you to to look not only to your own interests but also to the interest of others I want you to have this mind among yourselves which is the mind of Christ Jesus And at the cross, as Jesus' blood spills, we're given the opportunity to live life fully abundantly because of the forgiveness of our sins. And so today we drink, we remember, and we celebrate. As we continue in worship, if you're here today watching online, you need prayer. We would love to come alongside and pray for you online. You can click the button in-house. You can make your way to the banner in the back. We would love to come alongside you if you're dealing with ambition in your life that is destroying. we, We would love to pray for you. As we begin this new year, if you're just looking like, hey, I just need a blessing. I need God's blessing on my life. We'll do that too. Whatever you need, we would love to pray for you. You can just make your way to that spot here in the auditorium. I'm gonna invite everybody in house to stand as we sing to our King Jesus today and the love that he has for us.